Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It is Tuesday, September 27th, and this is your host, Vincent Shen. On tap for today, we have another quick update regarding the ongoing game of musical chairs at Viacom. And then we will be diving into the big story for this episode, which is Project Airgig. Joining me on the show to discuss this major opportunity at AT&T is Fool.com contributor, Mr. Daniel Klein. Hey, Dan. Great to have you on the show hey, today. Hey, nice to see you. Um, so, last Wednesday, you know, Viacom released a rather action-packed press release. There's a <laughs> lot of news in this thing. Uh, you know, uh, that's putting it mildly. If we're getting right into this, and it, they announced a dividend cut, the end of a search for a minority investor for Paramount, which is uh, basically the main studio behind its filmed entertainment segment. We could see that one coming. The departure of interim CEO Tom Dooley in November, which I think surprised a lot of people because you know generally pretty well liked at the company. And then a $115 million write-down for an upcoming movie release. So, Dan, before we dive into that very full plate, uh, I wanted to zero in on that write-down. I know you and I are kind of like movie buffs. Uh, we know we've covered the movie industry on the show before, some of the companies there. The flops are pretty common in the movie industry. Uh, you know, Even some of the most reliable, successful companies, I think Disney, have been forced to incur pretty big write-downs when some sure, of their- Sure, John Carter, 200 John million, Carter, as is a great example, you know, I think it was Any, several anything, hundred million dollars. Anything starring Johnny Depp that isn't a pirate movie. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so huge projects, they didn't pay off. They incurred big write downs on those, but incurring a one hundred and fifteen million dollar charge for a film that hasn't even come out yet. How bad does that look? It's absolutely amazing. So the movie we're talking about is called Monster Trucks, and it's actually based on an idea from a four-year-old, if I remember it correctly. And what happened here is they were supposed to make a very broad Pixar-style movie, you know, Cars, where Cars, the story is basically rocky. There's all your lovable kid characters, but there's sort of an underlying sports underdog tale that would make mom and dad want to go see it. And what happened with this Monster Truck movies, which is essentially monster trucks that have personalities and there's some sort of blob-like creatures that actually are the like human part of the monster trucks and what happened is they somehow made a movie that's narrowly focused at little kids which means it's not going to be a big hit you know winnie the pooh does 30 million at the box office whereas cars does you know half a billion or a billion or whatever it is so this is really an epic disaster when you look at the source material okay so Based on Paramount's release pipeline, um, you know everybody. Monster Trucks is pretty much the main candidate, they think, for the write down. You met the trailers out for the film, so listeners, if you want to see if it really looks that bad, <laughs> I will withhold judgment and let you guys judge for yourselves. But you know, you mentioned the four-year-old. That's really surreal. Um, I think the president of Paramount, when this project. Uh, basically, got the green light. It was I think his name was Adam Goodman, and you know they mentioned specifically that this was the brainchild that he kind of had, you know, with his son. And I think it started from a very uh, from the right place. You know, they wanted a franchise. They wanted something that'd be really easy to sell. Uh, you know, consumer products off of mainly toys and other accessories, and that makes sense to me. And they also wanted to develop their animated film. Kind of uh, capabilities that arm of their business, and that makes a lot of sense. If you look at this, the top three highest-grossing films in 2016, two of them are animated I, films. So I think what 
I think what they missed is that things in the last maybe two years have changed. It used to be that an animated movie aimed at families was pretty much a guaranteed hit. And in the last couple of years, we've seen some pretty big flops. Uh, was it the Ice Age sequel? Uh, you know, you're, you're, the, the Penguins of Madagascar movie? Yes. You're starting to see movies that seem like no-brainers. They're being released for family audiences at a time when families should go see them, and people aren't seeing them. And it's why I think they should have sold part of Paramount because Paramount's never going to be more valuable because the reality is Disney has Pixar and Marvel and all of it in its own house brand that pretty much guarantee a hit. Pixar could put anything out, probably three movies in a row, and they would do seven, eight hundred million globally until really they prove to the audience, no, these movies are terrible. Comcast has some of those same franchises. Viacom and Paramount don't, and this was an attempt to establish one, and it's become really that much harder. It's very hit or miss. Even if you line up all the celebrities, you get your, you know, comedians to play wise talking parrots, or you know, who knows? It's probably wrenches in this case, you know. But it's just not as easy as it once was. Yeah, and this situation very much represents, I think, a lot of the challenges and hard decisions the company is going to have to make in terms of its management the structure of the company, how it deals with you know what are frankly changing consumer preferences in a very, very competitive marketplace as it is. So moving on to some of the other stuff in the press release, uh, you know, let's just let's look at the departure of Tom Dooley. Like what is going on there? Tom Dooley realized while he had a chance at the job, he was probably not the favorite for the job. And if you've been in a company 35, 36 years, they know you. So if the board isn't saying, you know what, yep, Tom, you're our guy, we're, we're going to have to do a search because it's due diligence, if they're telling you, hey, you're probably not going to get it, it is, it's time to bow out. And what that says is either they want a yes man, someone who's going to do exactly what you know Sherry Redstone and whatever's left of Sumner Redstone's uh, mind tell them to do, or they're going to combine with CBS and really what they're looking at is paring down the debt, paring down the assets, sort of clearing the decks and putting less Moonves in charge, which frankly is probably the best bet. So, a uh, little bit of context, uh, in case you haven't been following our previous episodes where we talked about all this drama with the Redstone family at Viacom, uh, basically Shea Redstone, daughter of you know the man who really drove this business and kind of turned into what it is today, Sumner Redstone. She controls eight, controls eighty percent of the voting shares of CBS and Viacom. Uh, you know that very very good point. Um, so she has basically managed to wrestle control the company. The former CEO Philippe Dalman, he's out. Uh, quite a few legal battles, but now you know we're here. Uh, what else do you think looking forward investors might have to stomach essentially? Well, I think as an investor, you, you got to look at there's going to be a lot of pain here. They have a movie studio that doesn't have franchises and has a very underwhelming upcoming slate. Are you excited for the next Jack Reacher movie? I don't remember the last Jack Reacher movie. You look at their cable portfolio, uh, MTV, you know, the, the Video Music Awards just happened and it was kind of underwhelming. So this is really a portfolio in a changing climate that has to be dramatically overhauled. There's going to be years of debt and pain before you see any positives here. And and you know before the show uh, we had talked about the I believe it was 1 billion dollar bond offering that the company will be going into uh, you know and partial they they admit that with the amount of debt they already have in the balance sheet, this is going to cover some near-term maturities. So it's just stacking on top of that, essentially. Yeah, and they cut the dividend, but when you're a company that's in debt, you have to eliminate the dividend. And when you do that, it, you take a stock hit. You know, Viacom may have some underlying good parts. There are some very good cable networks there. Paramount does have some good properties. 
but you're going to have to retrench and retool. It means getting rid of a lot of people. Tom Dooley leaving pretty much says all of the sort of ongoing management is eventually going to get shuffled out. And you have to make a decision. Is this a standalone company or does it make more sense being part of CBS? And once again, with the, the changing face of cable and everything moving to streaming, I would rather bundle all my assets together and have sort of my own delivery system, my news angle, my, my sports, my all of this stuff and put it together. And you have an excellent CEO in Les Moonves and he's obviously someone that can manage the Redstone family. And I think that's probably where you have to go. Absolutely. Uh- just to leave it off for investors, the stock is actually uh, considering the amount of volatility with what's going on with management and the business overall. It's only declined about 11% year to date. But I think really put things into perspective. You know, that filmed entertainment segment back in 2011 made up about 40% of their total revenue. Segment has declined. That segment has declined over 50% in the ensuing four years. And you know, calls to potentially split off that part of the business. You know. Both Sumner and Sherry were vehemently against it. They said absolutely not. But you know, they're they have no they've presented no options really to turn that around. Yeah, and I'll go back on that's a mistake. Sumner and Sherry Redstone are operating in a world that has changed. You know, it, it's become blockbusters are based on major properties. They don't own Star Wars. They don't even own X Men. You know, they they have lesser franchises. So every time they bring a movie to box office. It's an unknown or a lesser-known property, and that's just not going to fly anymore. So if they had somebody willing to take a piece of that company and minimize their risk, that would have been a very smart thing to do. I mean, maybe the correct play is to sell a big piece of it to somebody in China or someplace else where it could open up new movie markets for them, but Paramount is not going to be as successful as Disney or as Comcast unless it buys properties and there's very little out there you know that guarantees a billion dollars at the box office and that's sort of what you need to get to the numbers you have to get to yep they're big uh, you know those big budget bets are very much more of a gamble when you don't have that established storyline or brand a 200 million dollar you know upfront budget on an idea from a 4 year old or whatever the budget was for monster trucks is crazy if you don't have pixar or an absolute guaranteed hit yes it was the director of ice age ice age was a long time ago and it's also been a diminishing returns franchise so this just was a bad idea on top of bad idea and the redstone seemed to be doubling down on that all right, Dan. So we're talking about big bets here. I want to move on to our next topic, and that is with AT&T and their Project Air Gig, which they released. Uh, I think the news came out about a week ago at this point. And you know, the headline here is essentially the ability for them to use power lines to deliver internet to underserved areas. Can you give us a little more detail? Yeah, it's so. Underserved areas are sort of the ones that make the most sense because they don't have internet, but really these are inexpensive, and they didn't provide any specific expense details, clip-on antennas that use the power lines. They don't directly transmit the internet through the power line, but they, they use the power lines to deliver wireless. And it creates the ability to bring internet connection to any place that has power lines, which is the vast majority of the country. So yes, it could help them bring it to underserved markets, and that would be, one, meeting legal obligations they were supposed to meet anyway, and two, it would in theory allow them to create a national or at least semi-national internet competitor where they could go in and say, yep, we we don't have fiber, we don't have wires, we don't have any of this, but if you want a $39.99 internet package from us, we can offer it to you. And that could really shake up the system. Yep. So, the company has been 
uh, pretty mum on the more technical details. Uh, you know, everything they put out so far in terms of like that press release, there was a video that accompanied it. It's very interesting, but they are very adamant also in clarifying the signal, as you mentioned, does not travel through the power lines themselves. It has nothing to do with the electricity. The the one thing I noticed is they. Uh, say the only thing they mention with voltage is they try to connect the antennas to the medium voltage lines, but that's only because you know Ars Technica kind of covers this is because their location on the electrical utility poles tends to be the highest up with a clear line of sight. So it basically allows the antennas to get the best signal travel from uh, you know from each radio. To and I think it's it's worth noting that this is in maybe not the early testing phases, but AT and T did an awful lot to dial down expectations. You know, this works in their private testing on their facility. They have not brought it out to the widespread, and there's spectrum issues. There's other things that could cause problems here, but this is very promising technology that we're probably about two years away from actually seeing in the field. And as someone who spends some of his time in rural New Hampshire, where I have satellite internet that works about as well as dial-up, and we do have power lines, a high-speed alternative would be something that would absolutely be perfect for me and my neighbors. And in theory, with a two-year time clock, this puts all the incumbents, Comcast, Cox, uh, who you know, Charter, whoever is providing your internet, it puts them on notice and says, okay, maybe some better technology is coming. And we already had sort of some vague things out there. Google has its blimps and Facebook has made noise about deploying some mobile internet options. But this is a concrete possibility where the infrastructure is largely already there. So if I'm an incumbent who's slowly ticking up broadband prices, maybe this puts a little bit of a check and maybe it gets me to actually deliver to markets that don't have service right now. Mm -hmm. So something else that I... Thought that this immediately, you know, clicked for me is that, you know, frank, frankly, there's going to be more and more need in terms of some of this high-speed access to the internet. Uh, Gartner estimates that right now there's six billion devices uh, that are connected in the world, and that number could explode to over 20 billion in the next four years when you have more mobile devices, more wearables, smart appliances, smart cars, and the countless other technology that companies are frankly connecting right now to make them more effective, more efficient, more usable. Um, some a few quotes that I wanted that I pulled from, you know, the AT&T announcement. And one thing they mentioned is this, this technology will be easier to deploy than fiber, can run over license-free spectrum, and can deliver ultra-fast wireless connectivity to any home or handheld wireless device. The thing that really jumped out to me is the license-free spectrum. Um, I know all the technical details aren't there, but what we do know, and we've talked about in the past, is the fact that companies have spent billions upon billions of dollars in the past two decades at spectrum auctions. At spectrum auctions. So it's kind of interesting to see where that goes. Well, the other thing this does, and we talk about Spectrum, but if you're AT&T, which already has you know, invested tens of billions of dollars in your wireless network, if you create a nationwide internet network across power lines, you're also creating the ability for hotspots for your phones. I mean, we see this with T-Mobile, where they're saying, hey, we don't really have great service in your area. We'll actually give you a device that makes your house a better hotspot so you can make phone calls. In theory, AT&T could supplement its already very good wireless network with this you know, Wi-Fi network created by this technology. So it might lower the value of Spectrum for some of its competitors that have spent billions. Uh, you know, T-Mobile and Dish coming to mind as, as people sitting on a lot of Spectrum. Uh, so this really could be a game changer, but they have to prove that it works. 
Yeah, and something else uh, I should clarify on the more technical side is that you know with these uh, radio stations that they're adding to the antennas, like you know the core of this project air gig, the connection is still originating uh, based on comments from the company, either from their current cell towers or the main hubs that they use to connect, for example, a lot of uh, their home subscribers. And uh, another quote. Uh, from that press release, Project Airgig delivers this last mile access without any new fiber to the home, and it is flexible enough to be configured with small cells or distributed antenna systems like the ones you mentioned, Dan, that they stress are very low cost. And no need to build new towers, no need to bury new cables in the ground. Um, and the thing that's interesting, you know, Sarah and I talked last week about drones, and a big potential that they had in shipping and logistics comes from the coverage of that last mile, which is in that case, really costly for carriers. But in this case, you know, having cables laid down on your property, uh, to, if you want uh, cable broadband access, I was just looking this up, costs tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's a big problem for people in new developments, more rural developments, depending on your location and distance from the nearest hub. So, potentially another, uh, another way that this technology is addressing a very costly problem. Yeah, it solves a problem, especially in underpopulated areas. I, I referenced my family home in New Hampshire, and the reality is I have maybe 10, 15 neighbors in two or three miles. It isn't worth it for whoever the cable provider, it's satellite television for most of us, but in, in the more populated parts of the town, whoever the cable provider is, it isn't worth it to them to run underground or even above ground cable to my house. You know, what are they getting out of it? An extra $80 a year for me? How many years will it take? And we've seen stories about individual houses, even in populated areas that don't have cables run. And Comcast will want $15,000, $20,000. I'm making those numbers up a little bit, but it's very high numbers in order to bring the wires that last mile. This solves that problem. Mm -hmm. And it also gives an alternative. I know I live in a high-rise building now, and I have one provider. I have no choice. I have to go with whoever has wired my building. But there's power lines directly outside my window. So if AT&T had this, might I be able to use that for leverage and say, yeah, I'm going to get AT&T, lower my price? You know, this takes it a step. If we have one nationwide internet provider that can serve most people, then internet becomes a commodity and prices start to go down. Yep. Essentially, as long as your apartment has line of sight to that radio station that, that you know they've set up with AirGig, then you yeah, would be I all mean, set. Absolutely. I, I have you know, AT&T Direct TV, so unfortunately an AT&T alternative may not work, but let's <laughs> pretend I, ha I had Dish. And Dish could say to me, hey, we're the only provider. We're going to go up you know, 50%. Now, of course, my building could say, well, when the contract's up, we're going you know, to kick you out. But then they have to wire somebody else. And you know, our previous location uh, where we live did that. They changed providers. And it cost the Homeowners Association $350,000 in new equipment. So these are not easy decisions. But if you take the technology out of it, then it becomes a free-for-all. You know, when I walk into a store, if, two, you know, if Coke and Pepsi are both different prices, I can decide based on which one I want and based on cost without some of the limitations I have with internet service. Yep. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of the benefits and, uh, you know, obviously a pretty significant opportunity, assuming that some of the field tests that I believe they're starting next year are proved successful and they're able to roll it out over the next few years, as you mentioned. But what about challenges? For the technology, um, you know, things that jump to me immediately are like regulation. The fact that you know they're going to need utility companies that manage some of these poles, for example, to cooperate. Uh, they're still in the very early stage of testing. And what about competing technologies too? 
Well, I mean, the, the challenge is the same challenge facing why you haven't been able to deliver me a burrito using a drone. The reality <laughs> is the incumbent always wins. So if you're the existing companies that have laid all this fiber, that have you know Comcast and Charter, companies that have been very intractable and fought against new technologies, they might be willing to say, hey, AT&T, absolutely serve these rural areas we don't want to serve. But they are not going to go so easily when it comes to letting them come into markets where they had monopolies or, in some cases, monopolies with one other telecom provider, uh, AT&T, Verizon, Frontier. So what you're looking at here is AT&T could come out tomorrow and say, yep, these are 50-cent antennas. We can clip them onto everything. We'll serve the whole network. And they're going to be facing years of lawsuits of, of sort of obstructionism because if you were an incumbent, why wouldn't you want to be a monopoly? Would you want someone to come in? So I think all – you know, you could rent the space on the polls. All, all the rest of it's just money. But when it comes to competing with well-entrenched companies that have you know, spent a lot of money on lobbying, I think that's the biggest problem AT&T is going to have. Okay, and uh, something else I want to mention too that could potentially, uh, you know, could be a roadblock for this really uh, becoming a dominant way that AT and T enters new markets, as you mentioned, is you know, five G technology right now is in development. There's lots of important standards that have yet to be determined, but you know, international organizations working together on this because you know, right now we are on four G LTE. In theory, in ideal conditions, you could get. Uh, potentially up to, uh, I think it's um, 100 megabits per second, or that's what you see now, one gigabit per second in like laboratory conditions. But with 5G technology, you know, generally they believe it can offer up to 10 gigabit per second speeds. And just to give you an idea, you know, with Google Fiber, which everyone touts as being this incredibly fast service, you'll pay for a premium with it if you get the AT&T version. That's one gigabit per second. So if this is delivered potentially wirelessly from cell towers. Uh, you know that uh, you know that could remove the need for something like this for for about six months uh, in our uh, since sold vacation home or about to be sold vacation home. I used a T-Mobile hotspot, a 4G hotspot using the T-Mobile booster I referenced earlier. And I could watch video. I could very badly watch Netflix. It was, you know, it, it uh, had to buffer a lot. It wasn't a great experience. But it was not a huge leap to think, wow, if this technology just got a little bit better, even with delivering 4G, so I had an optimum signal, you know, where I was, that this might be worth it for me to say, okay, I have unlimited. I'll pay the extra money so I can get full speed. And maybe I don't need an internet connection. Now, that might not be viable for someone in my line of work. But but for my mom who watches like an occasional Netflix movie and you know checks her email, you're right. You might be looking at mobile hotspots and 4G, 5G technology. The other thing you're looking at is you have Facebook and you have Google out there, and they're testing you know floating devices, blimps, let's call them, that deliver internet and sort of broadcast it out. And you're starting to see them at stadiums and other events where you know the existing infrastructure can't handle the the sort of surging crowds. So you're right. Technology could make this irrelevant. Um, but I don't think so. I, I still think 5G and, and 4G, it's spotty, it's location-based, whereas power lines are sort of hard and fixed. And at least in rural areas, I think this is going to be a very good option. And frankly, in rural New Hampshire, as I've referenced a couple of times in this show, I do not have any sort of signal on my cell phone. Uh, so you know, this would provide a Wi-Fi hotspot that I could also use my phone. Okay. And uh, you, know, you mentioned 
how you use that that hotspot. Uh, otherwise, and it worked really well for you. I noticed a really interesting trend. Uh, I don't remember the report I saw it in, but they were talking about how basically broadband access in the U.S. among the populations kind of plateauing. And actually, what they're seeing is some people are transitioning to smartphone only access, where that's their primary means. They're not wired to their home. Uh, it's still a very small portion of the population, but it is growing. So clearly, uh, you know, some people feel comfortable with that. I mean, it's worth noting that broadband numbers have been skyrocketing every quarter. You know, they go up a few hundred thousand in the slower quarters, a million in the busier quarters. I don't have the numbers in front of me. So homes are adding broadband. But what you are seeing is the sort of homeless, and by homeless I mean they're living in apartments, they're living with roommates, not not actual homeless, the sort of younger people that are less tethered, that don't have families, they are perfectly comfortable watching Netflix or Sling TV or whatever it is, or just YouTube videos on their tablets and phones. This to me is ridiculous. I have a 55-inch television, I don't want to sit in my living room and watch TV on my tablet, but younger people will actually have a TV in the background while they're watching it. It makes me sound 100 years old. I'm 42 years old. But that <laughs> You know, this to me seems silly, but certainly your phone connection in most places or your hotspot can deliver a decent experience on a smaller screen. And there's absolutely an audience of people that don't yet have roots or money that that's very appealing to. Yep. All right, Dan. So wrapping up here, um, you know, I want I wish that we could give. Uh, the listeners more uh, a more solid idea in terms of what the you know the revenue opportunity is or the the you know the profitability of something like this could be, um, but obviously still very much in the early stages. But I will leave listeners with this, and that's the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, in their 2016 broadband progress report. They mentioned that 10% of all Americans, or 34 million people, lack access to broadband or high speed internet. In that case, that's only defined as 25 megabit per second downloads. Speeds three megabit per second upload speeds, which in general would be considered, I think, pretty slow among people who have access to something like Google Fiber or even your average uh, service in a metropolitan area. But going further than that, you know, 39% of rural Americans or 23 million people lack access to broadband. So those underserved areas could present a pretty large market. And pairing with that, World Bank data says 100% of the U.S. Has access to electricity, and on top of that, 80 to 95 percent of that electricity is delivered through a power grid with overhead or above ground lines, which is exactly what this uh, air gig radio stations would be attached to. So the infrastructure is there, and assuming that maybe some competing technology doesn't just usurp everything. I think this is a pretty interesting development for AT&T. It, it, it's a big potential market. I, I keep talking about our house in New Hampshire, but the satellite service we have is five or six me- uh, megabytes or gigs in speed, and it's relatively slow. You can't watch more than one stream at a time, and it's expensive. It's significantly more than I spend in my, uh, you know, in my my regular house where there's in theory not in my building but in the town there's competition so this is a market where AT&T can go in and reach people that yes they might have internet service but it's lousy and they're offering them true high speeds and they might be able to come in at 60 or 70 dollars rather than 29 39 dollars because if you don't have something and you need it you're willing to pay more for it yep all right well thank you very much Dan uh, for joining me on the show today I'm going outside to wait for my drone burrito. <laughs> there you go. So that's all the time we have for today. We uh, can continue the conversation uh, uh, on 
Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can send us any questions or comments by email to industryfocus at fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.